On today's episode, Sanctuary Cities. How on earth is this possibly legal? How are states able to essentially nullify federal legislation in this way? Yeah, simply put, Sanctuary Cities are a defiant and blatant attempt to obstruct constitutionally valid federal law. If legal alien comes in this country and knows, hey, if I reside in X city that's a sanctuary city and I can't be deported, I can't be punished, you know, why wouldn't you come here? Coming to you from Washington, D.C., you are now listening to FAIR's Understanding Immigration Podcast. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to our second episode of the Understanding Immigration Podcast presented by FAIR. Uh, this is Preston Hennikins, joined, as always, by Matthew Tregesser from our press team and Spencer Raley from our research department. In this podcast series, we want to educate you, our listeners, on a number of important and high-profile topics in the immigration world. We're glad that you've chosen to join us today. We have a great topic for you uh, and one that has been in the news today. It's been in the news this week. Uh, so we think you're really going to enjoy this. We're talking about sanctuary cities. What are they? Why are they important? And what do you need to know about them at home? So Spencer, you're the expert here. What are these sanctuary cities? Where are they? And what do our listeners need to know about them? Thanks, Preston. Sanctuary cities, which also could probably better be referred to as sanctuary states and counties, so sanctuary jurisdictions, are jurisdictions that pass laws, ordinances, regulations, resolutions, policies, or other practices that obstruct immigration enforcement and shield criminals from federal immigration authorities. And most of them have one of or all of several characteristics. First of all, uh, they forbid law enforcement officials and officials from asking people about their immigration status, period. They refuse to report known or suspected illegal aliens to the federal government. They refuse to honor ICE detainers, which means they don't hold criminal aliens arrested by local law enforcement until they can be transferred to the custody of ICE. And they forbid officials and law enforcement from cooperating with or assisting federal immigration agents in any way. And the proponents of sanctuary cities typically fall into one of two camps. The first is this weak argument that somehow sanctuary policies make illegal aliens more likely to trust law enforcement. And really... There's, there's no evidence to back this up. Right, right. This is an argument that comes up all the time in congressional hearings about this. Well, you know, if, if we weren't able, you know, if we had, didn't have these policies, they would be scared to report crimes or come to the police. And, and they're based on, on these really weak reports. I, I read one of them just recently came out of Berkeley, and their evidence was that they essentially interviewed some illegal aliens and asked them, do you want your local law enforcement to report to ICE? I mean, you're going to get a really obvious answer to that question. Right. And, and another thing that we need to consider is the government offers specialized visas for people, for illegal aliens who help prosecute other criminals mm -hmm. and who are victims of a crime. So these are called U anti-visas. And so there's no reason why you would fear to report any crime to local law enforcement, and it's actually encouraged because we have these two types of visas. Mm -hmm. And let's not forget, you can still report tips anonymously to local law enforcement. You don't have to reveal your immigration status, your background. I mean, they have phone lines, online kind of submissions where you can offer these tips if you you know, want to report something. And so it's, it's a very weak argument by open borders advocates. And yeah, that's exactly right, Matthew. And really what it does is it's, it, they're covering for the more honest camp, 
which is just a desire to protect illegal aliens and other immigration lawbreakers from federal law enforcement. And some some sanctuary cities are very open and honest about that. They just don't want to they don't want to cooperate with the federal government and they're going to do whatever they can not to. Right, absolutely. And that's obviously a huge problem uh, when the federal government is not able to count on its state partners to enforce federal immigration law. So, you know, Matthew, coming off of this, you know, what are some examples of where this has gone really poorly or where this has gone wrong? You know, it's obviously not all roses and daisies when it comes to these kinds of things. Right. No, I mean, you can basically flip on the news any time in the week and you'll see some horrific crime um, and just some negative consequences resulting from a sanctuary jurisdiction's policies. Just recently, actually in January, a 92-year-old woman, 92 years old, was brutally raped and murdered in the middle of, a, of the street in New York City by a 21-year-old from Guyana, which is in South America. And he had previous criminal convictions, but he was also here illegally. But because of New York City's sanctuary policies, this crime was allowed to happen when it could have been 100% prevented, I'd hope, beforehand. And it it's not just limited to New York City. I mean, sanctuary jurisdictions are across the entire nation. And in, if you go to the West Coast, even in 2015, there is Kate Steinley, who uh, was also murdered uh, by an illegal alien from Mexico. On uh, this guy, he had seven previous criminal convictions and he was deported five times previously. And somehow he's still able to murder Kate Steinley. And it just goes to show you that San Francisco sanctuary policies are just simply outrageous. And on top of all that, this guy, his name was Jose Inez Garcia Zarate, was actually acquitted of murder, of Kate Stanley's murder. So just a horrific murder. And it's solely from the result of sanctuary policies. Right. And another good point to bring up here, too, is that this isn't protecting just everyday illegal aliens. This is really only benefiting illegal aliens who come into contact with law enforcement when they commit crimes. It it really doesn't do anything for the average illegal alien who kind of just goes to work and then immediately goes home. You know, this only protects people who have, uh, you know, a DUI that killed someone or, like you said, that that murdered someone. It it really prevents them from being transferred to, to ICE. And that's the biggest the biggest issue. Yeah, and it and it forces federal law enforcement to honestly work a whole lot harder than they need to, which is honestly the point for a lot of these sanctuary cities. For example, you had mentioned that case in New York. It's become commonplace and custom for ICE agents uh, in the uh, Mid-Atlantic and the uh, Northeast to actually monitor arrest records and try to get a hold of them and find out if someone's an illegal alien, and then as soon as they're released from prison, try to apprehend them. When it it should be as easy as New York City or uh, whatever jurisdiction arrests someone, sees that they're possibly an illegal alien, and contacts ICE and essentially says, hey, do you want to come pick this person up? Do you want us to hold them for an extra day or two or whatever? And typically it's just, it's just a matter of hours or days at the very most. But by not doing that, they are literally releasing criminals, and in some instances, very dangerous criminals back onto the street, when that absolutely does not have to happen. Right, absolutely. And actually, uh, just a few weeks ago, Orange County in California, their local law enforcement did a study of how many people that we're releasing, criminal legal aliens, are recommitting crimes 
uh, in a one-year time period. And uh, California, as we all know, has a statewide sanctuary policy called SB 54. And they found out that 25% of the criminal illegal aliens they released in Orange County recommitted crimes within that following year. And so this number is actually pretty low because it didn't count crimes that these illegal aliens recommitted in other jurisdictions. It was Mm -hmm. only in Orange County. But it goes to show you, some of these guys, you know, they're still a threat even when they're released. They're going to recommit another crime. And if there's a way to prevent that, why not do that? And Spencer, to jump on your point, this is something that former acting head of ICE, Tom Homan, would bring up frequently in interviews and when he appeared before Congress, is the idea that law enforcement has to go the extra steps to pursue criminal aliens. They're not just going to let them run around. And what that often leads to is making at-large arrests in the community. And so that would involve arresting these criminal aliens in their homes, you know, outside of courthouses, these kinds of things. And you have to remember, ICE, when they encounter anyone who is an illegal alien, so let's say they enter the house and that guy, you know, this guy's wife, his kids, they're all illegal aliens. All of those aliens are now going to be in ICE's custody. So it's in a weird kind of sick way, it actually makes it, more dangerous for illegal aliens who are otherwise not committing crimes to live in a sanctuary jurisdiction if ICE decides they're going to have an enforcement surge there because they're going to encounter people they otherwise wouldn't have. It forces a confrontation in the public as well, not necessarily in a controlled environment like a a jail or a, a county prison or something like that would be. So what you're doing is you're not only raising the risk that more people get arrested and, you know, consequently deported, it forces ICE to, I guess, take a more tactical approach to apprehending illegal aliens, and you never know what's going to happen. They don't know what's behind that door. Is someone going to have a gun? Mm-hmm. Is there going to be, you know, some sort of violent encounter? So it makes it less safe for everybody as well, not just ICE agents, not just those that they're trying to apprehend, but any women and children who might be in the house as well are innocent bystanders. So, Spencer, just from a a broad look here, is this legal? It's really not. And we could really get into the nitty gritty and the, the constitutional history in it, but you really don't have to. Immigration is one of a handful of functions that has been delegated exclusively to the federal government, which means that it's actually unlawful for states to, de- uh, to legislate on the issue. Just like a state can't interfere with other federally delegated issues like, you know, declaring a war or altering the federal tax code because there's something in there they don't like, even though, I mean, sometimes we may wish we could. Also, it was recently upheld at the Supreme Court level, uh, most recently in Arizona v. U.S., where the majority opinion stated that federal law makes a single sovereign responsible for maintaining a comprehensive and unified system to keep track of aliens within the nation's borders. And later on in the case, they just confirm what's known as the Supremacy Clause, that state laws are preempted when they conflict with federal law. And of course, the Supremacy Clause comes from Article 6, Paragraph 2 of the U.S. Constitution. Great. That's, I mean, that's exactly what I thought as well, is Mm -hmm. that how on earth is this possibly legal? How are states able to essentially nullify federal legislation in this way? I mean, it it seems like something that we fought a war about, does it not? (laughs) Yeah. Simply put, sanctuary cities are a defiant and blatant attempt to obstruct constitutionally valid federal law. Right. And actually, in, in recent weeks, in recent months, uh, the Trump administration has found kind of creative ways 
to combat sanctuary jurisdictions. And, you know, it might take some more legislation, which I think, Preston, you could probably expand on a little bit, but at least temporarily, they've introduced a few different initiatives to get these sanctuary jurisdictions to comply with them, uh, including placing restrictions on the state of New York's trusted traveler program, which is kind of a program that expedites the process for travelers uh, in New York, kind of think about like a a TSA pre-check, you know, how can we make this process faster? And that's what they did. They kind of curbed um, these programs. And so they said, hey, you know what, New York, you're not sharing these records with us. We're going to place these restrictions on your state and uh, on your trusted traveler programs. And this actually led uh, New York Governor Andrew Cuomo to come to the White House and say, hey, President Trump, I'm, I'm here to offer a concession to you. Let's work on an agreement so we can get this restriction lifted off. And, you know, aside from that, you know, DHS, there was another article recently saying that they were sending elite tactical units uh, from the border uh, to prominent sanctuary cities to help enforce the laws, immigration laws more. And also we've seen recently in in the last couple of weeks, DHS filing federal lawsuits against different regions that have sanctuary jurisdictions. So this included King County and Washington, um, as well as the entire state of New Jersey. So they're they're trying to find different mechanisms to combat uh, these jurisdictions. But I think there's probably more official legislation and congressional action that can be implemented. Is that correct, Preston? Right. And and I'd be remiss if I did not point out that as we record today, a court decision came out that is now allowing the federal government to restrict essentially police grants that are given federally to individual jurisdictions. So to local sheriff's offices, to you know state governments, that kind of thing. They're called the Burn JAG GAG grants. And this was an idea that attorney, former Attorney General Jeff Sessions came up with was to restrict these grants that a lot of these jurisdictions rely on to you know, buy police cruisers, to buy new uniforms, you know, things that aren't covered maybe by state taxes or local taxes. Uh, and this was kind of you know, the federal government's way of saying, hey, if you're not going to cooperate with us, why are we going to be giving you millions of dollars in federal grants? Right. Mm-hmm. And obviously, these states immediately went to court. They sued the federal government, and it just now was resolved to where the federal government is allowed to do this. And this is a, a huge win for the administration in combating some of these sanctuary jurisdictions. Yeah, it's a huge win. And it's really not an extreme maneuver either, if you think about it. There are dozens, if not hundreds, of federal statutes that if a state or locality decided not to go along with it, they would lose funding. I think one prominent example of that is the, I believe, the uh, alcohol age. Correct. Mm-hmm. Don't fall, if, you, if states don't comply... With the minimum age to purchase alcohol, they lose a lot of, uh, I believe, transportation. Yeah, it's, inter- funding. Inter- it's all interstate yeah. funding. And the only state that has ever looked at repealing this is Wisconsin. And they looked at how devastating it would be and said, you know what? No, it's not worth it to lower the drinking age. So that's, and that's a, a fantastic example that the government, the federal government, has this power to withhold certain funding to coerce certain behavior. And that's exactly what this is. And Matthew, to go back to your point about federal legislation, you know, there there are three bills 
in the 116th Congress mm-hmm. right now that deal specifically with sanctuary legislation. The first one is actually from Senator Pat Toomey from Pennsylvania. It's S-1644, the Stop Dangerous Sanctuary Cities Act. The Senate version has 25 GOP co-sponsors, which is about half of the entire Senate Republican caucus mm-hmm. in the Senate. You know, really what this does, it it protects local police from honoring ICE detainer notices, mm-hmm. which, Spencer, is something you brought up as one of the reasons that some of these localities adopt these measures, is they say, well, we don't want to be sued. We don't want to hold people longer than we're allowed to. We just can't touch this. Under this law, that would change how local jurisdictions are able to hold aliens, and it would prevent them from being sued or taken to court over these things. Um, It also defines sanctuary jurisdictions Hmm. under federal law, which for our listeners out there, this is actually an interesting point. There is no federal definition of what a sanctuary jurisdiction is. You know, it's, it's one of these terms that a lot of the advocacy groups on both sides, they know what it is. The, you know, the senators and representatives who are dealing with this issue, they know what it is. The sheriffs know what it is. But it's actually not found anywhere in U.S. code. This law would change that. Mm-hmm. And that's actually something that's very common in a lot of this legislation. Uh, and then finally, it also bans federal grants from sanctuary jurisdictions, which we just talked about. This would be in that law and something that it would probably be the biggest tool to change that behavior. Um, A second bill that's very important is the Immigration Detainer Enforcement Act, uh, which is S-2739. This is from uh, Senator Tom Tillis out of North Carolina, who's actually has introduced some of these bills. He's facing, you know, a very difficult reelection in a state that's turning more purple Mm -hmm. um, than normally. And, And, you know, they've... You know, North Carolina has faced a lot of these issues, especially with Charlotte, with its growth and with its change to a more Democratic majority down there. Um, And essentially, you know, this this only has seven co-sponsors, so it's not as big as Senator Toomey's bill, but it would formally allow states and localities to hold aliens for 42 hours to allow ICE to come get them. Right. Uh, right now, going back to this point that Spencer brought up earlier in the show, a lot of states say, well, we can't hold them past one day or we need a warrant or we need these things. Essentially, what this bill does is it makes a detainer from ICE the equivalent to a warrant from a judge. Hmm. So it, it, again, shields these jurisdictions from being sued. Uh, And that's a very, very important uh, aspect. And then finally, another bill from Senator Tillis that actually has more co-sponsors is the Justice for Victims of Sanctuary Cities Act. This wouldn't necessarily stop sanctuary cities from existing. What it would do is that it would give legal recourse to people who have been negatively affected by sanctuary policies. A great example of this would be the parents of, a, of someone who has died, such as Kate Steinle's parents. Angel uh, families. Exactly. Angel families would now have recourse to sue these jurisdictions on the basis of their having sanctuary policies. So it wouldn't be, you know, negligence or these other things. It would be, I am taking King County to court Mm -hmm. because my loved one was killed in King County by an illegal alien who otherwise would have been removed. And this would act as a very powerful incentive for, for jurisdictions to not adopt these policies. You know, I, I really hope at least one of these gets actually implemented. I mean, in the year 2000, keep this in mind, there were only 11 sanctuary jurisdictions 
In 2018, this number jumped to 564. It has only increased since then. And so there's really no sign of these jurisdictions being halted in any capacity. I know the administration has introduced uh, these kind of creative initiatives, but I mean, there has to be legislation passed through Congress that really puts an end to these cities and counties and states that are just shielding criminal illegal aliens from federal immigration authorities. Exactly. And it's important to note that as much as the Trump administration has done to combat sanctuary cities, if he loses or when he's out of office, it could be next year, four years. Yeah, it could be next year, four years from now, a, a de- you know, a Democrat taking the Oval Office would almost certainly get rid of these policies immediately. Right. And there are even some squishy Republicans who, if they yeah. if they got in the Oval Office, they might look at this and say, well, this is government overreach and all these kinds of wild claims that we need to get something passed through Congress. Otherwise, mm-hmm. these are just temporary measures to stop what has become a permanent problem. Right. Yeah. And there's right now there's Republicans don't hold the House. And there are a lot of moderates in the Senate. So there is no guarantee that if someone who was a radical open borders proponent found the White House, that they'd be able to block any of these proposals. And it sounds, it may sound like a a, a whole lot of different bills and perhaps overkill, but I think it's important just to reiterate, like we mentioned earlier, that there's a lot of different stripes and actions that are being taken by sanctuary cities. It's not like it's just one singular act and one, necessarily even one singular bill could fix it. And as Preston pointed out, there's really not much language in U.S. federal law as it is right now that bans or addresses sanctuary cities. In fact, a lot of the enforcement that's being handed down right now comes from 8 U.S. Code Section 1373, which essentially just says that local and state governments can't interfere with the federal government's efforts to obtain information from or to request information about potential or known illegal aliens. Right. And and I wrote down a, a few things here that a general bill should have if it wants to reduce the number of sanctuary cities in the United States. Right off the bat, you need to define what they are and you need to define it broadly. Mm -hmm. So things that we generally know, refusing to acknowledge detainer requests from ICE, that is probably the most general definition of a sanctuary city. Another one is refusing to cooperate with ICE when they contact you. General things that we, we can, in federal law, determine what they are so that we know exactly what we're dealing with. Second, you need to codify somehow the legality of ICE detainers so that they work exactly like judicial warrants. That's something that without really targeting sanctuary cities, you know, first of all, just empowers ICE as a law enforcement agency. And it really reduces the ability of sanctuary jurisdictions to say, well, we didn't know he was an illegal alien, so we released him. Under something like this, if a detainer holds the weight of a warrant, it would be illegal for them to release someone. And, and you're starting to see this uh, become an issue, even just beyond cities and counties. For example, Greyhound recently came out yeah. and said, we're going to stop yes. allowing uh, ICE and Border Patrol onto our buses. And so if you could adjust what one of these detainer requests meant and turn that into an actual warrant, they would lose a lot of their ability to do that. Exactly. And so to me, if you're talking about addressing this broadly to target as many sanctuary jurisdictions as possible, those two things need to be in a bill. Just defining what a sanctuary jurisdiction is 
and then giving ICE detainer notices the force of a warrant. Right. And here's the thing. If these sanctuary jurisdictions continue to expand and grow and now it's becoming not even a city policy, but a statewide policy. We're going to see increased levels of illegal immigration. I think it's hands down something that we're going to see. Already, illegal immigration costs taxpayers more than $135 billion annually. $135 billion. And, and if a legal alien comes into this country and knows, hey, if I reside in X city, that's a sanctuary city, and I can't be deported, I can't be punished, you know, why wouldn't you come here? I think any smart person would want to come up here and do that. So you really got to cut off the magnet. You can't be incentivizing people to come from other countries, crossing illegally, and then just housing themselves in these sanctuary territories. I mean, it's important that we not only we address it with, with items that you mentioned there, but just realize that without cutting it off, we're going to be incentivizing illegal immigration to the country. Well, guys, we've had a great discussion, uh, but that's all the time that we had today. To our listeners, we hope that you've enjoyed today's segment on Sanctuary Cities. Join us next time. As a reminder, we're going to be releasing a new episode every other Monday, so check out our social media for those announcements. If your friends want to know where they can find this podcast, tell them we are available on Spotify and Apple Music. You can also visit our website, fairus.org, and our Twitter handle, at Fair Immigration. We hope to see you next time on Understanding Immigration, presented by FAIR.